I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and connecting more deeply with our own humanity and the other humans with whom we share this planet. This is episode 82, and it's on Tudor historians and chroniclers. What did people who lived during the Tudor times write about their own history, and how did they want their history to be remembered? We're going to look at that through the lens of a few famous chroniclers and antiquarians from the Tudor period. First, though, some admin. This podcast is part of the Agora Podcast Network, and I invite you to check out the Agora Podcast Network website at agorapodcastnetwork.com to find out more great history podcasts, as well as some other great ones on economics and politics, things that aren't history. There's some great shows there. Second, I am so lucky that I have some amazing patrons of this show. So I want to give a thank you to Kathy, Jurgen, Elizabeth, Cynthia, Judith, Kaylee, Kathy, Christine, Annetta, Candice, Rebecca, Al, and Shandor. I love you guys. And if you want to join the list of people that I love especially, you can do so by sponsoring the podcast through my Patreon page. And you can do it for as little as a dollar an episode. So you can go to patreon.com slash, and here's a funny story, okay? Patreon.com slash nomad chick for more information. Now, I think I told you before how I got this moniker nomad chick, right? It's my alter ego. Because back in 2001, 2001, you guys, before web 2.0 and Facebook and home exchange and all of that, I was going to make a website for single women, like I was then in their mid-20s, like I was then, who wanted to find travel partners and travel on their own and get information and support on how to travel by themselves around the world. Now, since then, I never did it. Well, I made the website and there's like a couple of meetup groups that I started and then Nomad Chick just kind of went away. But Nomad Chick has become my alter ego for the past, what, 16 years And even though I'm 41 now and a mother, I'm always going to be Nomad Chick at heart. So it's N-O-M-A-D-C-H-I-C-K, Nomad Chick. So patreon.com slash Nomad Chick. I really should change the URL, but I'm so attached to Nomad Chick. It's like my soul, right? (laughs) Anyway, all right, that's my story on that. Finally, 
Have you signed up for the Tutor Summit yet? Yes, you heard me, the Tutor Summit. So what is the Tutor Summit, you may ask? It is a two-day online event where I'm gathering some of the leading historians, bloggers, and podcasters on Tudor history to give talks on their particular subject passion. And it's completely free for you to sign up and watch the event. It's going to be broadcast online on September 3rd and 4th. So there's going to be about 10 to 15 talks by some of these leading bloggers and historians. And all of the talks are going to be broadcast September 3rd and 4th. And it's totally free for you to sign up. Check out tutorsummit.com for more information and to sign up. Again, tutorsummit.com. On we go to Tudor Chroniclers. In 1848, a book called The Diary of Henry Meachin was published in London, and it purported to be a chronicle of events in England between July of 1550 and August of 1563. This wasn't unusual. During the mid-19th century, several journals from this period were published, but the other ones were by people who were already known to historians like John Dee or Simon Foreman. Henry Meachin was a puzzle. Historians only knew of him from this 19th century work. Was it real or was it just a literary device? That is the mystery. And I'll tell you the answer at the end of the show. Okay, so you have to listen. But by way of introduction, what made Tudor Chronicles, Tudor Chroniclers so special? And why am I doing an episode on them? Here's why. The spread of humanist thinking, as well as the printing press, means that for the first time in the 16th century, we see this birth of true historical thinking. The chronicler of the mid-15th century, who was in a place that was firmly medieval, didn't seem to have any concept that the past was in any way different than the present. When you read these chronicles, it was as if all time just was. Forever and ever, a life everlasting, amen. Chroniclers wrote down events to reveal morality, to talk about these grand lessons from God, and to write how one side or another was favored or punished by God. And you can see Bede as an example of this, the venerable Bede, right? And it was during the 16th century that we start to see this understanding of the concept that the past was different than the present. It's not just this linear line and everything's the same and it's all morality. There are actually customs and changes in society that are different from one century to another. We also see the idea that society is made up of people and that citizens should be engaged in their society. And that began to take hold out of the rise of humanism. So one way of becoming engaged is to understand your history, to understand where you come from and to understand the cultures and the customs that are part of your culture. Partially, this came out of the great changes of the 16th century with the Reformation. The church was no longer just this one continuous, unchanging organism. There was the church before and the church after. And as humanists were so interested in the classical period, they began to look at Rome and Greece, not just from the writing of events, but looking at objects and artifacts and evidences of events the way that we would today. They looked for evidence of Roman roads in England. They looked for coins and inscriptions, and they began to see the value of these artifacts. This was an entirely new way of thinking and looking at the past. Because humanists believed that education was so important as well, it became the job of the humanists to get these new ideas out into the world 
And thus were born these amazing Tudor chroniclers. The chronicles directly led to the history plays of the late Elizabethan theater as well. The idea of writing the past had gone from being an activity for a solitary monk alone in a cell designed to teach people morality, to being a popular event, a day out at the theater and learning to understand one's place in the world, which is incidentally what I've been saying at the opening of this podcast for several years. So look at that. I'm channeling my inner Tudor chronicler. Let's look at where things are at the start of the 16th century. One of the first pieces that Caxton published, and if you haven't listened to the episode on Caxton and the printing press yet, you should go back and do that. One of the first pieces that he published was the Brute Chronicle, which was a medieval chronicle um, with events dating from the 13th century. Now, chronicles like this were meant to be read by wealthy, educated merchants and landed nobility. They wanted to read a general history. Records like the Brute Chronicle are simply contemporary records with no analysis. Within just a few decades, we start to see people writing commentary on events that link current situations to the past. And by the end of the 16th century, leading antiquarians and chroniclers formed the Society of Antiquaries, which is still in existence today. There are way too many chroniclers to talk about in a single episode. And so I urge you to check out this episode's show notes for full links to all of the sources. Many of these chronicles are freely available to read online thanks to the magic of the interwebs. And I have links up so that you can check them out. So now that we've set the stage, I'm going to pick three particular chroniclers to talk about. Edward Hall, William Camden, and John Stowe. Those of you who read a lot from this period are going to chastise me for leaving out Hollinshead, Polydor Virgil, and some other famous ones. And again, please check the show notes because I do have links to them up. So Edward Hall, he's the first one I'm going to talk about. He was a lawyer and a member of parliament. He is most famous for his The Union of Two Noble and Illustrious Families of Lancaster and York, commonly known as Hall's Chronicle, published in 1548, a year after he died. Hall died. Hall's Chronicle begins in 1399 with the ascension of Henry IV, and it follows through the Wars of the Roses, and it continues until the death of Henry VIII. Hall is a major source for Shakespeare's history plays, although Shakespeare apparently only came at Hall through Holland's Head, which was a later chronicle that kind of quoted directly from Hall. So a lot of what you see in Shakespeare is reflective of Hall, though he came at it from Hall and said, so there you go. Hall writes about Richard III in the way a proper tutor would. He wrote in this propagandist way, calling him a usurper, and he legitimized Henry VII's over overthrow of him. He does talk about the sadness and the foreboding that Richard felt before Bosworth. And this is dramatized in Shakespeare's play, The Night Before the Battle, when Richard loses his spirit and becomes really contemplative and kind of down downtrodden. Hall sees the monarchy as this ongoing line directed by God culminating in the Tudor dynasty. So here's a passage I'm going to read to you that he wrote on the monarchy. And it's a bit long, but I think it's interesting to see what his perspective is. So he starts, this prince was almost the Arabical Phoenix and amongst his predecessors, a very paragon for that he amongst all governors chiefly did remember that a king ought to be a ruler with wit gravity, circumspection, diligence, and constancy. And for that cause to have a rule to him committed, not for an honor, but for an onerous charge and daily burden, and not to look so much on other men's livings as to consider and remember his own doings and proper acts, for which cause he, 
not too much trusting to the readiness of his own wit, nor judgments of his own wavering will, called to his counsel such prudent and politic personages, the which should not only help ease his charge and pain in supporting the burden of his realm and empire, but also incense and instruct him with such good reasons and fruitful persuasions that he might show himself a singular mirror and manifest example of moral virtues and good qualities to his common people and loving subjects. For it is daily seen that a vicious prince doth more hurt with his pernicious example to other than to himself by his own peculiar offense. Such a governor was King Richard II, which of himself being not of the most evil disposition was not of so simple a mind, nor of such stability of wit, nor yet of so little heart and courage, but he might have demanded and learned good and profitable counsel, and after advice taken, kept, retained, and followed the same. But howsoever it was, unprofitable counselors were his confusion and final perdition. Such another ruler was King Edward II, which two before named kings fell from the high glory of fortune's wheel to the extreme misery and miserable calamity, by whose unfortunate chance, as I think, This King Henry, being admonished, expulsed from his old playfellows, his privy sycophants, and ungracious guard as authors and procurers of all mischiefs and riots, and assigned to their places men of gravity, persons of activity, and counselors of great wit and policy. So there he's saying, these are the are the qualities of a good prince. You should have wit, you should surround yourself with good people, good counselors, you should be a good example of moral virtues. And he said, now, otherwise, it will hurt your people much more than it will hurt you. And such a governor that was like that was, of course, Richard II. And he says, you know, Richard II wasn't necessarily the most evil person, but he had really bad counselors. And that was something that hurt him. Another example of that, he says, was Edward II. Now, this King Henry, the one that we have, has gotten rid of his old people and has these new ones put in so that he's going to be a good example. And that, of course, was written after the break with Rome. So that's quite um, an example of this kind of the looking at, at the lens through which they were writing their history after the Reformation, kind of praising what Henry VIII was doing and saying, look, he's come to this place of truth now because he got rid of his old bad counselors. So that's Hall's Chronicle. And that's an example of what Hall writes. Next up, we have William Camden. Now, William Camden was born in 1551. He became the first chronicler to write a history of Elizabeth's reign. He was a Londoner. He studied at Oxford. He became a teacher and he spent all of his leisure time devoted to antiquarian studies. He started his Britannia, which was published in 1586, and it's a survey of England written in Latin. He wanted to write a full history of England, and in 1607, he began his Annales Rerum Anglicarum et Ibernicarum Regnante Elizabetha, which is Annals of the Affairs of England and Ireland during the reign of Elizabeth. He published the first volume, which goes up until 1588. He published that in 1615. The next volume covered the period from 1588 until Elizabeth's death. Thorians use Camden now as a major source for information about Elizabeth's reign. He's pretty much the most major contemporary source that we have. During his travels, he discovered Roman coins in England. He was the first person to talk about place names and what that meant culturally. So looking at the the old Roman place names and how they've been changed through the years. And he also looked at Roman coinage. And so that was kind of his big, um, his 
his big study was looking at the the Roman civilization in England and how that was impacting us now, impacting them in the 16th century. He died in Chislehurst in November of 1623. He's buried at Westminster Abbey and his monument incorporates a figure of Camden holding a copy of the Britannia. And that actually, you can still see it if you go visit in the South Transept. So now I'm going to read you his description of the defeat of the Spanish in one of the battles during the Armada invasion. In the meantime, Drake and Fenner played hotly with their ordnance upon the Spanish fleet that it was gathering together again over at Gravelines, and they were presently joined by Fenton, Southall Beeston, Cross, and the Lord Admiral himself, Lord Thomas Howard. The Spaniards got clear of the shallows and sustained a charge as much as they could since their ships were much torn and shot throughout. The galleon San Mateo was taken, and the whole Spanish fleet most grievously distressed all the day long. So that's an example of the way he wrote about battles and Elizabeth's reign. Finally, I'm going to tell you about John Stowe. So in 1598, a very old man decided to write a history of his changing city, a snapshot of a city that was going through enormous transformation. And he wanted to capture the city that he knew as a younger man for posterity. That man was John Stowe. The city was London. And the survey that he wrote provides historians with much of what they know about life in late 15th 16th century London. Stowe himself was born about 1525 in Cornhill. He was born in the city of London. He was a tailor. We started writing about history in 1561. And he saw this task of capturing changing England as a mission. It was like what he wanted to give to posterity. He wrote, I seeing the confused order of our late English chronicles and the ignorant handling of ancient affairs, leaving mine own peculiar gains, consecrated myself to the search of our famous antiquities. So he's saying the way they're doing it right now, I'm not really such a big fan of. I want to devote myself to now talking about our famous antiquities in London. At the beginning of the 16th century, like we've talked about before, London was a pretty small city of 50,000 people. And throughout the century, it would transition into a modern and diverse city. And that's part of what I love about this period, this transition from a medieval society to an early modern one. And its size had quadrupled within a century. The city was much more cosmopolitan than we can imagine. We've talked about the black population in London. And in one parish alone, St. Baltoff's outside Aldgate, there are French and Dutch immigrants. There's a Persian, there's several Indian and one East Indian who was Bengalese. So we have this very cosmopolitan city, very similar to you know what we imagine London being today with all these different types of people floating around. And that happened in the span of a century. So Stowe was born earlier in the century. He was born before there was any Church of England. He was born when the church was still following the Pope's rulers. And he saw all of these changes. And he chronicles his city in such detail that we can picture it completely. So like I said, check the show notes because the entirety of his 1603 edition is freely available. And in reading it, we get this complete kind of snapshot of London, starting with an overview of the city. Then he talks about the geography, including the rivers. He kind of gets all back in my day because he talks about one creek, Walbrook, is now covered over by streets and it's path runs underground so that no one's really aware of it any longer. You know that it's like that in London. There's rivers all over London. 
that in ancient times, and even until the 16th century, were still there, and you had to kind of cross over them. But now they're all paved, they run underground. He, Stowe, talks about this one creek, Walbrook, that was now covered over. And, you know, back in my day, Walbrook was open, but nowadays, kids don't even understand that you had to once cross across Walbrook, and now you just walk across because it's paved. So there's a little bit of a note like that. He adds in his personal commentary on this. In the same chapter on the creeks and rivers of London's, he has a section titled Fleet Dyke Promised to be Cleansed, the Money Collected and the Citizens Deceived, in which he talks about an event in 1589 when the council allotted a thousand marks to be collected and they were going to draw on the springs from Hampstead Heath to bring fresh water to all of the places of want in the city. But the money was spent, and apparently the experiment failed, and now things were worse than ever before. Before discussing each of the wards, Stowe gives background on information on customs and pastimes of Londoners. We learn that the chief activities are plays, playing with balls, cockfighting, shooting, leaping, dancing, wrestling, fighting of boars, baiting of bears and bulls, and, quote, exercises of warlike feats on horseback with disarmed lances. We learn that after dinner, most of the youths go into the fields to play ball, even the scholars at the schools, the old men come out of the city to watch the young men playing, and every Friday in Lent, a fresh company of young men comes into the field on horseback, and the best horseman conducts the rest. Then the citizens' sons and the other young men march with disarmed lances, and, the pra- and they practice the feats of war. He then describes what the activity looks like, how you win or lose. And it's so clear that, you know, as you read this, you can clearly imagine Finsbury Fields bright and bustling with these games. Stowe then goes on through each ward and each suburb. He includes Southwark, Westminster. He discusses the notable homes in each place, who lived where, the city of, or the history of who had had each home, what the streets were like. He talks about the gallery of Whitehall and the tennis courts and the parks. Each ward is thoroughly dissected. Its history and customs and activities are discussed. But like I said, there's often this air of, I'm an old man and my city is changing and I don't always like it with him. How do you like that voice? So in the early section on the rivers, he talks about how in the past there were so many fresh brooks and waters that are now decayed. Um, He talks a lot about things like that. So you should totally read it. If you love London, if you live in London, you should read this book and get a picture of the vibrancy of the city almost 500 years ago. And like I said, I, I link to it in the show notes. So that concludes the three chronicles chroniclers I was going to talk about. But what of our opening story? What about Henry Machen? Well, he was real, but only one fact has been published about Machen's life. He was buried in the autumn of 1563. Of course, that's also the last year recorded in his diary, which ended in August of 1563. The initial source of this information was a church plaque, and it described him as a tailor and clerk of the parish and clerk of Trinity the Less. So that's what we know about him. We know he existed. He was real. And his diary is also freely available online. Here's a sample from this week in history as Mary I rode triumphantly into London after the rebellion of Lady Jane Grey. So he says, the queen came riding into London and so to the tower, making her entrance at Altgate, which was hanged in a great number of streamers hanging about the said gate. And all the street onto Leadenhall and to the tower were laid with graf- gravel and the crafts of London 
stood in a row with their banners and streamers hanged over their heads. Her grace came and the mayor of London and the Earl of Arundel and the swords and the trumpets blowing. And next to her, my lady Elizabeth, Elizabeth I, next to her, the Duchess of Norfolk and the Marquess of Exeter, other ladies, and after her, the aldermen, and then the guard with bows and javelins. And they all departed in green and white and red and white and blue and green to the number of horses and spears and javelins. So you get this real clear picture of Mary coming in and what she was wearing and all of these people with all of the banners and everything hanging around and all of the people riding with her. And you you can really start to get this clear picture of what it was like and the descriptions are just brilliant. So I hope this episode has inspired you to read some of these chronicles and discover the vibrant way that people were talking about their history during this time period. Like I said, head on over to englandcast.com for the show notes. You can get links to most of these freely available online. And while you're there, don't forget to check out the Tudor Summit and sign up for that. And remember, you can support this show through Patreon at patreon.com slash nomadchick. <laughs> the book recommendation for this week is Tudor Historical Thought by F.J. Levy. And I have a link to that on the site as well. So I will be back next time with the Tudor Times interview, and then I'm going to do another unit on food and dining and manners. So stay tuned for that. Thanks so much for listening, and I will speak with you again soon. Blow, northern wind, send for baby sweating. Blow, northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hoorte in Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.